Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to episode 114 of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. I'm Matt Emma. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Jesse Atlas on. He is a director, and he has made uh, a bunch of stuff, including two short films that have done rather well. They were both, I'm pretty sure, Vimeo staff picks. Uh, the first one got him a feature deal with a studio, a big Hollywood studio. The second one is on the festival circuit. It premiered at Tribeca, and he has kind of become really strategic about how he works on short films. He even teaches a workshop on his short film theories. And not just how to make a great short film, but how to make that short film work well for you in your career and for your future basically his whole point is like it's an investment in time and creative energy and resources and so why not be the most strategic that you can be so narrow things down to exactly the things that you are aspiring to and what you want and then make that short work for you and then have a plan to execute both the short and also the future of that short's life basically yeah so we just dive into short films and how to give them like a, have, an, a take long to, life. Yeah, long life and, and take it to the next level. If you're, you know, an accomplished filmmaker or a person who's thinking about a short, if you've got a few shorts under your belt and you really want to like figure out how to have them help you level up, basically. Jesse's mastered the ideas and the theories behind how to make a short do the most for you as possible. But before we talk to Jesse, I would love to know, Matt, what have you been working on lately? Yeah, man, I am. I'm enjoying that little um, the the sunset phase of having wrapped out a big job. I've got other stuff coming. I'm in development mode. I'm basically writing and pitching for the next month or so, um, and I'm really having a good time with it. I've been craving it because I was on that job for like four months. I realized it's long. Yeah, it sounds really um, stressful to me. The the previous job or or no, just hanging out? Just hanging out. Um, I hang out for one day. I'm like. Go postal. I'm getting a little itchy, but I've like I've got enough meetings. I'm I, my days are still pretty varied. It's not um it's not a problem yet, basically. And, and kind of was part of my plan. So that's been really good. And then you know it's funny. I had a 
kind of a breakthrough that I think is worth talking about in terms of voice and like the way that I see myself because I kept thinking about what I wanted to be doing next and what I should be developing and kind of the stuff that uh, Jesse is talking about, you know, just like, what is it that I do? And I it realized when I was younger, you know, I looked up to all these filmmakers, you know, Spike Jones and Soderbergh and all like all these guys that are like really stylistic and cool and like did cool music videos and were cool, cool directors, right? Like David Fincher is a cool director. And I thought that that's what I wanted to be. And I kind of, honestly, I'm like a grown ass man and just realized, um, not like just this week that what I'm best at and what I like to do is different than that. And so the realization that like, just because you love a filmmaker or a style or a point of view or a voice, um, doesn't mean that that's who you are as a filmmaker. It seems really obvious, but like when you think about it to yourself, um, and admit that maybe you're not the, the thing that you're striving for isn't exactly what you're aiming for or should be aiming for. I think it can be really freeing. So I realized like, you know, I'm like a lot more James Brooks, like, like I love a good workplace comedy or like, you know, like characters who care about each other and crack jokes and maybe have a little bit of adventure, but like, you know, I'm more about feelings and the emotional, sentimental core of a story and then the jokes on top of that than I am about like a cool visual trick or something like that or like moody lighting or like wonners. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, I think anybody who's objectively looking at my work is like, well, yeah, obviously that's what you do. But I didn't realize it myself until just recently. Yeah, no, I have that struggle every day. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, Yeah, I'm like... and. Like I pitched a TV show a couple of years ago that I don't know if I would watch because I don't really watch TV shows like that. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really watch any sci-fi dramas, but I was pitching a sci-fi drama. Drama. So what does that right, mean? Exactly. You know. Um, yeah. And with shorts too, I always wonder. It's like all these people are like ex, you know, like so interested in making short films, but they all hate watching short films. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's. Uh, it, 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 I mean, there's this old adage that you are good at what you like, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you're just saying that you're realizing that's not 100% true. Right, exactly. I think as filmmakers, you love a lot of movies yeah, and a lot of, a lot of things, you know, like you can love music videos and commercials and documentary and not be a documentarian, you know? Yeah. I kind of decided a while ago that I, I am not interested in making music videos, even though I mm-hmm. love the idea that you can explore kind of cool ideas with them. They're just so much work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, with so little money that I'd just rather explore those visual ideas on my own thing or in a commercial or something. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm still down for music videos, but like, but only because they're an excuse to play, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. If somebody handed me one with yeah. an, an okay budget, I'd definitely be open to it, but I'm not pursuing yeah. them. Yeah. You don't care about it at all. Cool, man. Yeah. What about you, Orin? What have you been working on lately? Well, I have a question for you. How and We've already talked about this before we started recording, but how many people do you think is normal to audition in one day? I know, I know the answer. Oh, God. I, I have come to really appreciate like a two or three hour session. Right. In which case, <laughs> you, you see know, 30. Yeah. 
Yeah, about basically. 10 people per hour. 10 people an hour is about right. That's a little fat. Well, depends on if you're doing scene work, um, if you're doing like mixing and matching people, or if it's like just spots where it's like come in and say that, you know, your lines for your 30 second spot and maybe throw a button on the end. Um, but you could go, you could go closer to like six an hour even, and it would be okay. Yeah. Well, we have, I think we have a seven hour session tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're going to see 86 actors and it is going to be really hard. And these are callbacks. These are not the pre-read. So we pre-read like 400 people. There's, we're casting 14 roles. Um, so it's, I'm just like not looking forward to it. It's also my first time meeting the agency people. So We've talked about this before, but I I feel like I'm going to be judged by how I'm working with the actors, by the agency people. So, yeah, that's what I got tomorrow. Yeah, it's like you're like, hey, nice to meet you. Bang, we're running a marathon. Yeah, and from, I mean, if any actors listen to this, the one piece of advice I'd give you, which is totally useless, but just know when we're seeing that many people in one day, any excuse to cut someone, <laughs> we yeah. take. Um, like, oh, this person you know, is will require a studio teacher to be on set. Nope. Uh, yeah. This person has the same hair color as this other person. You know, this nope. person was five minutes late. Let's just skip, you know? So it's not that that stuff is so important, but when you're doing especially commercial stuff and the look is 90% of what we're going for, uh, and we have more options than we need, we'll just like start cutting people for very, very simple, like non-important reasons. So anyway. And it has no bearing on whether or not you were a good actor yeah. or whether or not you're going to make it. I hope that instills you with faith. <laughs> I mean, I think it should actually, because um, it's, it's a, it's a, just a little bit of a gamble. But the the thing is, is that commercials aren't going to help your career beyond just having money. Right. And that's obviously an important, valuable thing, but um I think in this day and age, you can't depend on commercials unless you really have like a look that you book commercials all the time. And there's some actors who are lucky enough to like be distinctive enough looking that they book all the time. But for the most part, you can't count on commercials to pay your rent. So like the, you really have to think of them as a windfall and who wouldn't want one of those. But also like if you're not depending on it and you know that the stakes are basically super low, you can free yourself up mentally to not worry about them. Just go do a good job and then leave. Yeah, and know that somebody probably did fight for you. Yeah, <laughs> at yeah. some point, even though you never got the callback. Yeah, there are a lot of people on your side, and it it's hard to understand that. But like, you've got, you know, a bunch of agency people, the director, the the reader, oftentimes has more say than you realize, and the casting director, all of whom are kind of like working together to get, in this case, your uh, one thousand people to come back and. <laughs> Yeah, it's nuts. Um, well, cool. Well, yeah, uh, we'll do a one-on-one episode soon, and we will catch up on yeah. more things in detail. Uh, before we talk to Jesse Atlas, I just want to remind you guys that if you like the podcast, you feel like you're getting something out of it, if you want to just help us pay our team and uh, let us know that you guys like what we're doing, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pod. and we appreciate anything you guys want to do. Uh, cool. So without further ado... Jesse Atlas. Thanks for coming. Um, we've known you for a while. You were in our directors group. Thanks for having me. Jesse, you, um, I feel like you, whenever we talk about shorts off the mic, Oren's always like, we got to get Jesse on the show. 
Jesse is the smartest dude when it comes to shorts of any of but I know he's going to blow people's minds. Trust me, this is incredible. I went to a screening with Matt and we saw a bunch of shorts and some of them are great, but some of them are like so bad. And I was like, I wish we could just do an episode where we talk about what not to do in your short. Yeah. And Jesse, you're an expert not only on making a good short, but one that strategically is helpful to your career. So let's start there. Once upon a time, you hadn't figured everything out. And you were like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and make a short. What, what, tell us about that first experience. Okay, so it's really funny because, well, I have a set of rules that mm -hmm. I go by now when I'm making short content. And especially in making sure that it's reflective of where I want to be in my career, mm -hmm. who I am as a person, who I am as a storyteller, um, and also what's important to me in the world of my story. And... Now, having having those rules defined, it's really funny to look back on um, my first short film where I didn't have those rules mm -hmm. in place, but I kind of I was subconsciously right following those rules. Even you though are I natural. Yeah, I hadn't laid them out. I didn't know what they meant yet, but mm -hmm. they were still there. Right. So what was happening was I was attached to a studio film as a writer and a director. And this is before you had any shorts or anything like that? This is before I had a short on my own. I had uh -huh. a directing partner, and we got attached to a feature um, that was actually a sequel, and it was a studio film. And I pitched a story that I for it that I really, really liked. And over the course of a couple months of working with these producers, our story, which which had great character arcs that I was really proud of that was asking really, really smart questions about the world, slowly got chipped away at, not in this kind of like, oh, well, I'm an artist and you guys are idiots because you work mm -hmm. at a studio. It wasn't really about that. It was much more about the fact that there were creatures in this movie. Mm -hmm. There were monsters. And the, f the first movie in this series had cost X amount of dollars. And for X amount of dollars, they got Y amount of creatures. Sure, sure. So if it were so, Jurassic Park, you'd be like, okay, well, mm -hmm. we know three Velociraptors costs a million right. bucks. Exactly. Right. And we we've got half a million. Tyran Tyrannosaurus Rexes for the cost of three Velociraptors. Right, right. So um, despite the people who, were, who we were working with on the studio side also being very smart people and very smart storytellers, their mandate was, look, if, the, if what was spent on the first movie was X and we got Y amount of creatures and now we're spending XX, then we should have Y, mm -hmm. Y amount sure. of creatures. And so our script wasn't fulfilling that amount of creatures. And... You know, it wasn't for lack of love for right. monster and creature movies. It was just we were telling a very smart story and one in which the encounters with the creatures um, were more powerful in, qual in quality mm -hmm. than in quantity. Mm -hmm. But they had a formula that they had to stick to, which is they had to see monsters. So the script, the script kind of started spiraling out of control, out of my hands. And scenes and arcs and beats that were once very strong were now getting interrupted by the fact that you had to see a creature. Mm -hmm. um, and the, it, the writing on the wall was clear, that the script was just getting worse and worse. And even though we were satisfying this requirement of their superiors, we all knew that the script was getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Months before it fell apart, I knew that it was going to fall apart. And I knew that I had to do something else to pivot to land on my feet. Mm -hmm. And what that other thing was, was I knew that I, 
I had to create new material for myself. I needed a new short film. And one of the things that was going through my mind, the strongest thing that was going through my mind is like, I hate the idea that there has to be this amount of set visual effects creatures at every point throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to show them. I'm going to make a sci-fi film with no VFX. And that became like one of my defining goals Mm -hmm. in starting to craft this other film that I was working on. And in addition to that, I was like, I'm going to show them, I'm going to show them that I can tie every character beat in my film in with the sci-fi concept because in this feature film those things were falling apart so i already had like two things that were very important to me right um in my goals and you know i like that they were kind of very kind of technical goals not technical but they're related to the format they're more like an ethos than like a story it's not like Mm -hmm. yeah it's more of the type of story you want to tell it's true and you know there's there's you know i have a long a long-standing um existential relationship or problem or however we want to phrase it with like being proactive or being reactive Mm -hmm. and i certainly understand that these choices were i like i was being reactive but in this case these reactive choices um helped me to create something really strong so the the film that we're talking about is record play and record play is driven by a is driven by a um sound effect Mm -hmm. concept um, the strongest visual effect in record play is an edit um, and being on either sides of the divide of um, of being able to move in and out of time, two different time periods and two different worlds. Um, and I knew that we wanted to. And when I say we, I'm talking about myself and my uh, writing partner, Aaron Wolf. Um, we wanted to find a a concept that was audio driven and sound driven instead of being visual effects driven, not only for the constraints of budget, because as we all know, a lot of our shorts are coming from out of pocket or from very personal sure. ways of funding. Yeah, best case scenario. Oh, a Kickstarter that, you know, your aunt funded with you. Right. You know, like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, looking at it as a business investment, we knew we didn't want any VFX from that some point. We also knew that we wanted to challenge ourselves to do something that, that nobody else was doing in the sci-fi space. So that led us to this idea um, that that sound would tell the story in a way that the visuals mm-hmm. really couldn't. Um, and arriving at that place, you know, all of a sudden, a lot of things kind of snapped into focus once we had that concept. Once we had the concept that um, that the cassette in the film would be the um, the sound itself, the sounds that were on the cassette were going to be the things that were going to carry us from one space to another. Right. The sound is the monster. Exactly. It's not the, a puppet of a monster or, right. or a digital version of the monster. Exactly. Like the you, manifestation is the sound. Yeah. I right. guess I'm curious. Like, Can you if, tell us the log line real quick? Yeah. Is it it's more like of a reveal. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, the, the log line is basically how a Walkman and a cassette tape transcend space and time to bring our protagonist back to the moment of his wife's death in his quest to alter the events of her death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's 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 kind of the log line. You know, it's a 10 minute short, so I can't say too much more than that about how he winds up manipulating space and time without giving away too many things. But yeah, so an audio driven concept is, is what got us to that point. And then, um, and then, you know, my goal of crafting, of kind of melding all of the character beats and character arcs to that sci-fi concept 
um, really gave us like a great kind of mandate for how we were going to go about the short. So we really mm -hmm. wanted to be able to show a complete emotional arc in 10 minutes. Right. Um, and as we all know, shorts operated at a different pace. They move at a different speed. Um, they don't necessarily conform to like your standard three act structure. So you have to find a way both to accelerate the narrative and a way to slow it down. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the really, really tricky parts. That's definitely something I've noticed about your work, <clears throat> that it feels like you're, you feels like you get time with the characters and it's like reflective, but also a lot of stuff happens. It's, it's funny because I still, I still never fail to get nervous a little bit when I'm at a screening of either Record Play or Let Them Die Like Lovers. Um, which is your more recent short. Right, which, um, which I just took to Tribeca Film Festival 2018. You know, I always kind of set forth for myself another rule of short filmmaking is, is that the pacing has to operate at the pace of a short film. And there's, I think that there's um, a different way to look at that than a feature film. You don't have the luxury of time. You know, I can, I can, go, to any, can go to any short screening and, and, you know, within three or four minutes, if I've watched, if three or four minutes of the film have been spent on somebody walking out of their front door, or making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I'm like, okay, well, we're halfway done here and the story hasn't gotten started. I'm gonna tune out now. Um, and that's something that like with record play, um, you know, the first three minutes of the film are a man sitting at a table listening to a, a cassette tape. Mm -hmm. And every time I see it in a screen, I'm like, oh my God, this is so slow. How, sure. like, what a failure. Like I've, yeah. I've broken my own rules and like, that's what why are you people can't thinking? Ever watch your yeah. own stuff, man. Yeah, it's so boring. <laughs> I'm like, are people going to tune out? And then the comment that I get at the end all the time is like, oh man, I was so glad that I like I had a chance to sit with this guy mm -hmm. before he started this journey, right? I do want to just you know rewind for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, film school? Did you go to film school? No. Did you? I study did not. I I got a theater degree. Okay. I decided that I wanted to get the most useless degree possible. Yeah. And, you were like film yeah. school. That's too useful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And are you and from LA? No, I'm from New York and New Jersey. Um, I did undergrad theater at Rutgers. I definitely got a lot out of how to work with actors out of it. Um, but yeah, no film school. Right. Um, um, how did you uh, find yourself at Talent Week? Then did you go to USC eventually? Or how do I find myself at Talent Week? At the USC thing. Oh, um, I was invited by an organization called New Filmmakers Los Angeles. Oh, cool. Awesome. They're a great organization. So they've been, they've been supportive of me and have, um, you know, as they have been of new filmmakers, as, sure. which is their Isn't their it mandate. funny, though, yeah. that they call you a new filmmaker? And how long have you been in L.A. making films? Well, you know, it's been, it's, yeah, but there's been different iterations of that. You know, at first I thought that I wanted to make documentaries and I made one. Um, and while I'm very proud of it, I don't think that I would ever make another documentary because, man, without that was draining. Yeah. Um, and then I had a directing partner for a little while. So really, it's only been about, you know, uh, five years. And while I have found a lot of success in the short form and I've been able to leverage that um, to creating short form series, to starting a uh, short form content creation workshop and in storytelling um, and and the fact that I've been able to move forward with some of my shorter films and setting them up as feature adaptations. And now some of them as TV, um, you know, I guess, you know, I'm still, I'm still on, I'm still on this side mm -hmm. of my first feature. Right. I'm still on this side of my first TV show. Um, but I feel like my experiences in the trenches are only giving me 
more to talk about and more to more info and more lessons that I can share with all my colleagues. For sure. But yeah. it, there is kind of a little bit of a takeaway that like five years yeah. is a brand new filmmaker in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, that's yeah, you're that's an overnight true. success at 10 right. years, right? Like people <laughs> yeah. think, yeah. And you made record play like two years ago now. Uh, no, it was actually five years ago. Oh yeah. So that's when that, that's when you mark the beginning of you as a filmmaker. I think so. Yeah. I think I was, I was messing around with a few different ideas, but it didn't really coalesce into like what my, my own voice in all this actually was until I had made that film. I guess I think what's interesting to our listeners mm-hmm. is more like, how do you take a short and turn it into a fucking studio deal with, for a feature film? Like, yeah, where does that, how does that happen? Absolutely. Okay. So when I finished record play, I was convinced that I had just made a, re, a directorial calling card. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the story was a little bit out there. Um, I definitely taken some risks um, in asking people to suspend their disbelief and, People really, really went along with it. And I had a very supportive agent who, you know. And did you get the agent from Record No, I, I had already had that in, in place. At the time of Record Play and, the, and like the year, kind of the years, couple of years before that, when I did get attached to a feature, there were, it was a time of a lot of broken scripts were around. Mm-hmm. And a lot of like the more newly signed writers or writer directors would get a chance to like take a crack at these like D-list scripts, mm-hmm. like for like American like, Pie Five that type. Yeah, of thing. and so the question was always like, well, is this real? Like, does the producer that owns this like even care about this? You know, and you're you're not quite sure, but like it's what you can get your hands on. I did not know at the time that I finished record play that the industry was in the middle of a kind of like feeding frenzy of finding shorts. And acquiring shorts as IP to adapt to features. And that was part of what was going on in the cultural landscape at that time. And this you is know, like four years ago. Yeah. Um, and as, this was like the time when like every amazing sci fi VFX short was being like those directors were being oh, snatched, absolutely. Right? You're talking about the absolutely. Josh Tranks of the world and the. Yes. Or like the Raven. The Raven is a perfect example. Right. You know, when Neil Blomkamp made. Um, Welcome to Joburg or right. Welcome mm-hmm. to Johannesburg. I forget if it's which. I guess it's Welcome it's to Joburg. Yeah, Joburg, I think. Yeah, Before Joburg, the yeah. pre District 9. Yeah. So, you know, he made that. And then Peter Jackson came in as an executive producer and he was attached to the Halo movie mm-hmm. for a while, which, which you know, he, he still, he had his District 9. He had the District 9 idea, but it wasn't, it wasn't like they were trying to jump him from the short version of District 9 to the feature version of District 9, as I think we, mm-hmm. a lot of us know the story that. You know that came that basically came together as like a gift from Peter Jackson once once Halo fell apart. Yeah. But with other films like The Raven, where it was like, okay, we you know somebody needs to buy this, um, and let's you know you know let's flesh it out together. Let's develop it. This is this is hot new IP. Um, I kind of fell into the same category with Record Play, where it was like, oh my god, what is this? I finished it. I sent it to my agent the next day. He told me that he had sent it to 10 people, to 10 production companies, um, several of them studios. This is pre-film festival. This is pre-film festival. And he said, what's the feature version? I said, I don't have a feature version. I just worked with my writing partner, Aaron, to just, you know, boil this down into 10 minutes. There's no feature. What are you talking about? And he was like, okay. He called me back um, the next day. He was like, yeah, you better come up with the feature version. <laughs> because there's a lot of people that like this yeah. and they want to see a feature version. 
Right. Um, and they're going to forget about you like in a month. Mm-hmm. Basically. Despite the fact that I convinced myself that I did not have a feature version, when Aaron and I went back over the pile of ideas and the pile mm-hmm. of things that we had to leave aside to make record play as tight as it was, we found that we did, we really did have a feature version there. You made this short, it got you a feature deal. Why make another short? Why not just try to make another feature again? Like what is it? What is this magical short thing that you figured out that may, caused you to make another short? Well, to answer that question, I guess I have to say what happened the, the first time around, yeah. which is that, um, you know, after making the short of record play and after pitching it, setting it up with a major studio, with a major production company, it just didn't work at the end of the day. We experienced a couple of regime changes. We experienced an exec who honestly like vanished without a trace from the but business. Th- this is like super common stuff in Hollywood, right? right. I mean, 90% of scripts that are written are not produced. In the oh, end, right? absolutely. But I think what, you know, what my takeaway from it was, was that you have to make a big choice about whether you want to pitch, um, whether you whether you want a development contract mm-hmm. deal, or whether you want a production deal. And with Record Play, we took it out and we took a development deal. We didn't want to write this on spec, and that was for a lot of reasons. We wanted like the bright, shiny bait that was dangled right. in front of us. Money. In the, in the, we wanted money. Um, both Aaron and I were expecting children mm-hmm. relatively soon. Sure. We they gave really you children? To. Yeah, they gave us children as part of the deal. If you make a movie wow. in Hollywood, you get a child. Wow. Yeah. wow. Remind me not to make another movie. So it didn't work out, but um, it didn't work out. But I realized in I realized then that what I did not want was to go through the process of developing mm-hmm. a script with other people again, um, which is why, a, you know, after this kind of, crashed and burned, um, which I now have several experiences with things crashing and burning, and I wouldn't trade them for the world because I am ridiculously smart about the way that I approach things mm-hmm. right now, and I would not have that knowledge otherwise. Right. But, you know, with Di- Let Them Die Like Lovers, which is a film that I made last year that we're taking out on the festival circuit right now, um, it's a very good question that you guys are asking, like, why make another short? Everybody's dying to make a feature. Why make another short? The reason for this is... I wanted to take another shot at the success that we had with record play. And I wanted to do it differently this time. I wanted to make a short and I wanted to write the feature on spec. Hmm. I did not want a development deal. I did not want to make the, make a feature script with, with a producer. Did you write the feature financier before you made the short? I did write the feature before I made the short because what I thought was going to happen in my life is that I was going to make record play and that Let Them Die Like Lovers would be the follow-up to record play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were ready with your right. second feature. Exactly. Feature. And then when we knew that record play was not going to happen as a feature, at least not in its in in that version of it, um, I decided to reverse engineer a short mm-hmm. out of the feature that I already had because I saw how easy it was for me to walk into any door and talk about my unique sci-fi concept and how it worked. And there was no question of like, well, it's execution dependent because they're seeing it on screen in a short. But so, I mean, I think that's like a common thing, right? You're trying to pitch a feature. You have this great idea. You want to really show people a, how that idea works in a visual medium and B why you are the person that should direct it what's why make like this kind of fully polished short that hits a festival circuit as opposed to making like a proof of concept video because a proof of concept video 
is exactly what it sounds like. If you like, if you were in an elevator with like your favorite producer or your favorite director and be like, Hey, you want to watch this really cool proof of concept video? Who the fuck wants to watch a proof mm-hmm. of concept video? Mm-hmm. It's all proof I'll of concept it, video at the, at the end of the day, but like you have to disguise it as something else. Just for our listeners, what I mean by proof of concept is like you get your freaking iPhone out and you're shooting things, you edit it together, you rip sure. footage from other movies, you're really basically selling the tone and what your movie looks like without spending any money. Well, one of my favorite execs on one of my projects is like, you know, I had lunch with him one day and he was like, oh, great, a Ripomatic. Somebody sent me a Ripomatic for their feature. Mm-hmm. I was like, so what do you feel when you get Ripomatics? He's like, I don't feel anything except for like, great, they have a friend that could edit. And they found $500 to pay their friend that could edit to like put clips together from other movies. It doesn't really do anything for me. Well, I mean, it definitely, you get tone out of it, right? You get tone out of it. But like, if you're a good speaker, if you're a good storyteller, you should be able to kind of do that yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can make a short that actually has like a beginning, middle and end that feels like its own complete story, then people don't feel like it, then people don't feel like it's a proof of concept. Then you have a starting point to say like, look, Here's what I did. I created a closed loop and that loop became an experience for you. Now what I can do for you or with you or you can help me to do is reopen that loop in a way that's exciting to both of us. Mm-hmm. Right. But you but when you have something that feels closed and complete like that, it's so much more powerful because it shows that you've made a lot of choices. I'm trying to put like a finer point on why I feel like that doesn't work, but I feel no, like I think I get it. I feel like You're I feel no like people can smell a sale mm-hmm. a mile away, and if you if you can show them that something, if you can show them something that's like, here's a piece of of me, and here's a piece of my work, and it's not and it's not just for the purpose of selling you. Mm-hmm. I think it just leads to a much more deeper connection between the person and that material. Ultimately, I think what you're just saying is that regardless of whether it's a part of a feature or a thing that's just, you know, you know, a thesis film or whatever, it has to work on its own terms, basically. It has to work on its own terms. I think it has to really, really has to work on its own terms. Yeah. And do you think that uh, like Welcome to Joburg, Neil Blomkamp's short did that? Or like Portal, Dan Trachtenberg's short? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Portal, Portal, not so much for me, but I would say maybe like the short version of the short of Whiplash. You know, sure, I mean that's that's that the best me. example, right? Like, yeah, it's directly lifted out of the film, um, right? Like uh, the scene. Yeah. Ends, I actually like, haven't seen the short. Does it have an end, like a satisfying it's, ending? It's literally the scene. Um, it's the not my tempo scene. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a good scene. Yeah, when it ends, when the short ends, it feels like it feels like you've you've experienced something. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't right. feel like you watched like the setup yeah. or something. And, th- you know, this is something that I that I talk about in my my, you know, creating short form content storytelling workshop is that like in addition to being a storyteller, in addition to making something that you think is really cool and that you're proud of, like you always have to look at it as a business investment. Right. If your product. Right. Your product is your short. If your product can only do one thing. Is it really a great investment? Mm-hmm. If it really is just a proof of concept and all that it does the only reason that it's there is to service the idea that you have more to this story and it's just teeing up the rest of this story. Well, okay. It functions on one level, but it doesn't function on another level where a, it can get you more, more fans. It can get you an, more of an audience. Like an audience doesn't care that you like 
shot the first 10 pages of your script really well. They just feel no, like, oh. I, I mean, just to be un- yeah. clear here, proof of concept is not for a film festival or an audience. It's to right. go sell a studio or a production company or an indie financer or a rich dentist or whatever on yeah, making right. your movie. And right. I, now you can do that. Now that's, that's all of those things are valid goals and you should have those things as your goals. In addition to engaging with an audience, getting to film festivals, um, if you're a director as well as a writer, making something that puts you in the minds of people as a as a visual storyteller or as whatever kind of director you want to be as well. It's like record play function on so many levels, mm-hmm. right? It was the blueprint for a feature, which I didn't even realize that it was the blueprint for a feature at the time. But it was a blueprint for a feature. It was a directorial calling card. And it was perfectly tailored for a film festival, which I do think... You know, you get, you can kind of level up if you get the right kind of laurels and the right kind of stamps attached to your film. It um, it showed the things that I'm, that I wanted to show mm-hmm. that I'm capable of, not just in terms of like making the feature film of a record play, but it was important for me to go out and have a piece of material that showed, I know how to create a full arc in 10 minutes. I know how to work with actors to get a very dynamic performance within 10 minutes. I know how to tell a visual story without using any kind of language. And I know how to blow your mind with a sci-fi concept without having to explain the sci-fi concept by giving you enough mystery for the concept. And within that, within that kind of like dark and violent space, I can still find a mood that's about love and romance and, you know, love and romance transcending and being epic so i reverse engineered my goals you know everything everything that i just said is what i wanted the feature to be but it's also how i wanted to be seen Mm -hmm. as a director right these are my skills and these are this is what i'm going to put into my short and i think that a lot of people get distracted with a lot of other things they they feel like well i'm making a short it has to look it has to feel like a hollywood film it has to have like everything you know, I have to have like a steady cam shot in there. So your shorts, I mean, they kind of look like Hollywood films. They look like Hollywood films only because they're, but, but that's because they were super shot on Hollywood Boulevard. No, no, no. <laughs> because they were very specific because I was able to phase out through process of elimination what was not important to us. I think mm-hmm. the, the ultimate point that you're making, Jesse, is that like it's easy for people to get caught up in a certain aspect of their film, right? Like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, or whatever. And you're saying, take a step back, mm-hmm. reevaluate what really is important to you about this film. What are you trying to say about yourself as a filmmaker and the stories that you want to tell? And then with those concrete specifics, you have a better chance at approaching your film that will um, ultimately do all of those things for you. Right, it'll 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 be the the biggest payoff, the biggest bang for your buck, basically, rather than piecemeal like, you know, one's a VFX thing and one's a dialogue thing. Right, and like, this one's practice and this one looks good, and you know, you could spend a decade doing that, basically. Yeah, so I you're think saying so. Nail it, basically. I, I, well, I'm saying nail it, but I'm saying also like decide what it decide who you want to be, mm-hmm. decide who you want to be as a storyteller, decide who you want to be as a director and make sure that all the choices that you're making in your story, in your filmmaking and the way that you present your film are reflective of that. And don't get distracted by other things in record play. There's several right. fight scenes in the hallways, um, you know, with our, with our main character um, getting into altercations with a couple of Bosnian soldiers. 
um, originally in the script, you know, those pages were kind of like, a I mean, those fights were really complicated mm -hmm. and it was going to be like pages and it was going to take like a full day to shoot them and it was going to add a day to our shoot. And at the end of the day, I had, to, I had to say to myself, am I doing this? Like, am I doing this for the story or am I doing this for my ego? Mm -hmm. You know, and like at the end of the day with this film, I'm trying to show you that I can make sci-fi films with human emotions. I'm not trying to sell myself as an action director. Right. Right. So do I need a fight scene? Not really. And then all of a sudden those things got simplified into like a punch, a reverse punch and a knockout. Okay, they were super simple and it gave me more space and more room to allocate resources to the things that were more important to right. the story, like spending more time with the characters. And made your film more successful. And made my film more yeah. successful. So like the more that you can narrow in on like what your goal is, and this is what, what you know Aaron and I teach in, in our storytelling classes, like the more you can narrow in on like who you want to be and what your goals are, you reverse engineer all those things and put them back into the movie. We decided to do a time travel movie that took place, you know, half in like 2005, half in 1993. People were like, you're crazy. You have no money. Um, and, you know, there were some like sleepless nights where I was like, oh, my God, how are we going to show that she's in Bosnia in the middle of the war? Like, what are we going to what are we going to need to do? We're going to need to have like burning tires and like an alley and a sniper and like, you know, shrapnel and debris all over the place. And all of a sudden at the end, I was just like, you know what? It's sound. All that it is is sound. And the reason was twofold. First of all, we didn't have the money to do that. But second of all, like I was able to say to myself, what am I really going to prove mm -hmm. if we do do that? If I put her in an alley with burning tires and shrapnels and broken glass. You are the burning tire guy. Man, right. so good. Person. Yeah. No, it's like, what am I going to prove? I'm not going to prove anything right. except that I somehow found the money found the, to put those money. things right. in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two schools of thought to just make. I mean, it's not the opposite, but it's like a little there's so many things to worry about, you know, when you're making something or writing something or whatever. And I have that problem with writing. Like I start writing, I'm like, this sucks. And I just like go, whatever, eat some chocolate. Um, but with filmmaking, you have the same problem. So, you know, there is a, at some point you should just make stuff and not worry about the strat, all the strategy, you know, I, in my opinion, like there's something important about just being, being active and, learning from your mistakes like you said like you wouldn't be where you are if you didn't make all these mistakes beforehand so yeah i mean it's a balance it's like do things learn be strategic but also don't worry about everything too much I think. right well so jesse i want to learn a little bit more about your class actually because to me i it sounds to me like this is the opportunity for you to for a filmmaker who maybe is floundering to calculate in very specific ways and then be armed with the the final their answer basically for this short and then and then they can just go shoot it right so they maybe mm -hmm. you get to have your cake and eat it too with this class so tell us what what's the format how does it work how can people sign up all that stuff yeah so you know it's, it's funny just to kind of bounce off of what Oren's saying like i totally agree like you should just sh i want people to just shoot it mm -hmm. i don't want people to be hindered by fear but i also want people to make choices that are make choices right now that are in line with their long-term goals right so if they're saying like well i want to i'm going to like just shoot it i'm not going to care about like for example my art direction but like what I really want to do is like Wes Anderson type films. Well, if you make if you put your time and resources into a film that doesn't really have great production design or art direction, you're not going to be able to pitch yourself on, on those kinds of films. Um, and so it's like make choices now that are going to pay off in the future. Right. I love what you said about like if you don't care to be an action director, don't waste your time 
trying to shoot right. expensive action things that will not look nearly as good as a right. Hollywood movie. So it's about it's about understanding the philosophy of of looking at a short as part of your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, as it's part of an ecosystem of content, you know, your brand, your voice, learning how to define your own voice within 10 minutes or less and learning how to define it in a way that's going to let's say if you're making a short that you know that you have feature potential with or series potential with that that piece of content Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.